You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. I'm uh, so excited to, uh, to be here today and to get into God's Word uh, together. You can open up your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can help you out with that. They're coming up and down the aisle uh, right now. Really Really thankful for the invitation, the opportunity to be here. So glad that Pastor Daryl is getting a rest, a time away together uh, with his family and uh, really jumped at the opportunity when I got the invitation to come here. I love this church. Uh, I believe that this church is sort of a, a, a leader in so many ways, particularly in the way of prayer. I look up to Daryl in so many ways. I love the way he preaches. I love the way he leads, the way he thinks. But I love the way that he leads with a humility and desperate dependence as it relates to prayer. I... Before the first service, I was in three different prayer meetings. I literally walked in the door, and at the door, there was a prayer meeting. Then we went into a room and had a prayer meeting, and then went into a hallway out here before the service started and had another uh, prayer meeting. And I talked to one of your elders and said, just love how you guys pray all the time. He said, well, we're just, we're just desperate, and we just need the Lord. And may that always be true uh, about uh, this uh, church. So I'm so grateful to, uh, to have the opportunity uh, to be here. You know... Um, my two oldest boys are just starting hockey, and uh, I, I was just thinking back to, uh, to my uh, hockey career, and I, I, particularly in high school, I became very familiar with the ceilings of every arena in the Hamilton area. And uh, when I was in grade nine, I happened to make the varsity hockey team. That doesn't say a whole lot about my talent, just says about the quality of the program we had at our high school. But I was in grade nine, and that was back in the days where they had grade 13, OAC, and in the same way that, you know, some people stick around for an extra year, they call it a victory lap, uh, even in the days of grade 13, people would stick around for grade 14. And so I was, I was in grade 9 playing against kids who were in grade 14, you know what, like they had like a full beard, a couple of kids, they're dating one of the teachers. And, uh, you know, I would go into the corner with one of these gentlemen, and uh, pretty soon I'd be looking at the ceiling, and uh, I'd see stars, and then I'd see the lights and the heaters at the, and the, the ductwork in, uh, in the arena there in Hamilton. The truth was, I couldn't stand. I, I couldn't stand on my skates when I came into contact with someone who was so much bigger, so much stronger, so much older than I was. The question that I want to ask you today is who's able to stand before the Lord? We, we just sang about every knee will bow down. So you can, you can guess what the answer is. The truth is no one can stand before the Lord. We live in a world that thinks that the Lord can just be dismissed. That we can somehow pretend like he doesn't exist. That, 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 that we can say that we've sort of evolved beyond our need for spirituality. Or, or that, that you can believe that if you want to believe, but, but that's just wishful thinking. And people who think that way, they are one day going to have a very rude awakening. Because they're going to realize that, because people are talking as though God can't stand before them. But the truth is, they can't stand before the Lord. Others of us might be here today and we're thinking, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'll be able to stand before the Lord because look, I mean, I'm in church right now and, uh, you know, I, re I read my Bible every day and I, I volunteer with the, in the, this way or that way. I mean, I'll be able to stand before the Lord and explain to him all of the good deeds that I do because I'm a good person and I'll be able to stand uh, before the Lord. If you're thinking that way, you too are going to have a rude awakening, you are going to realize that no one can stand 
before the Lord. Uh, so today we're going to study sort of an obscure uh, passage. We're going to study 1 Samuel chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. We are going to cover three chapters of Old Testament narrative in one message. I'm not even joking. <laughs> and so we're going to pray for God's help right now. And uh, so would you just uh, bow your heads uh, with me? So let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, God. I thank you that although... Um, Although I'm coming from Brampton today, that I'm here with my uh, family, that these are brothers and sisters. And God, thank you that you're our father. And Lord, I thank you that you uh, love us so much. You love us just the way that we are, but you love us too much to leave us that way. You desire to transform us. And one of the means of transformation is your living and active word so that our minds could be renewed. And so God, right now, as, as people may not be accustomed to hearing my voice at this church, I pray, Lord, that, that they would hear you speak, Lord, different messenger, uh, but Lord, the source is the same. It's your spirit, it's your word. And so we pray that you would help us right now. Uh, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, let me bring you up to speed. First Samuel begins with... Uh, with Hannah praying, and, and then there's a miraculous birth. Samuel is born, and Samuel's committed uh, to the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and that's when we're, we're introduced to uh, Eli, who was the priest at the time, and, and, and literally, at this miracle baby that, that Hannah had prayed for, then she entrusts him to the Lord and gives him to, to Eli. He becomes like, like his sort of uh, spiritual stepfather, and he's living there among the, the tabernacle and where the priests were living. And he had these two sort of de facto uh, stepbrothers, Hophni and Phinehas, who were wicked, evil, immoral, selfish men. And, uh, and in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we're sort of given a window into the wickedness and the perversion of the clergy at that time. And then um, God, um, in, in, in his uh, infinite wisdom, calls upon Samuel to, to, to deliver a prophecy to uh, Eli and to his sons, a prophecy of doom and uh, destruction. And that plays out in chapter four. The people of Israel go into battle against the Philistines, which they had done many times before, uh, but they lose. And then in an act of superstitious presumption, they bring the Ark of the Covenant with them, that, that gold-plated wooden box with cherubim on the top carried by poles containing the, the, the Ten Commandments and a, a jar with manna and Aaron's staff that budded. It was, the, it was the symbolic presence of God, and they sort of brought it like a rabbit's foot, like a lucky charm, being like, if we bring this with us, then we'll, we'll win the battle. We'll find a success, and they did not find success. They were defeated. Hophni and Phinehas, the, the ones who brought the ark, they are killed in the battle, and the Philistines, they actually capture the ark. The ark of the covenant is now in the hands of the enemies of uh, Israel. And then at the end of chapter 4, uh, one of Eli's daughters-in-law, uh, she was pregnant, and she finds out that that Hophni and Phinehas have died, and then Eli just died after he received the news. And so now this woman is in childbirth, and, and we're told that she dies in childbirth. So here's a woman who was a, just became a widow. She's about to give birth to a child who's about to be an orphan. And in her last breath, she names her son. Chapter 4, verse 21, it says, And she named the child Ichabod. 
uh, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. Uh, there's sort of a bit of a resurgence of Old Testament uh, names uh, in, our, in our culture today, and you see lots of Noah's and, and Ezra's and Jacob's and Eli's and that sort of thing. You don't hear a lot of Ichabod's, all right? You don't see that in a child dedication. No one's naming their child Ichabod. Um, not just because it sounds weird, but also because of its meaning. It's, it's a question. It's the question, where is the glory? Uh, the ik part of the name, that's the, that's the question part. A kabod or kavod, that is the word for glory. And if we're going to understand this passage today, we need to understand this concept of glory. The Hebrew word for glory and the Hebrew word for heavy or mass or weight, it's the same word. So when, when, when she named her child, where is the glory? It's as though she's saying, where is the mass? Where is the heaviness? Where is the weight? You see, the very foundation of their society was crumbling. The symbolic presence of God was now in another nation. And she's asking the question, where is the glory? And so if you're taking notes today, you can jot this down, that as we think about the fact that no one can stand before the Lord, first and foremost, we need to understand that no one can stand before the Lord's glory. And we're going we're to see that as the ark travels uh, in this foreign land of uh, Philistia. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer, that's where the battle was, to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside a Dagon. A couple of things about the Philistines first and foremost. The Philistines were, were not uh, native Canaanites. They're, they were actually, they were Greeks. They came from the, the Aegean Sea. They sailed into that region and sort of uh, set up. Let's get a, let's get a picture of a, a map on the screen here. So Shiloh, that's where the Ark of the Covenant uh, was normally kept. That's where Eli and his sons and Samuel lived. It was brought to Ebenezer where they lost the battle, and now they've brought it down to Ashdod, which was a, a coastal city. And it says there in, in verse 2 that they put it into the house of Dagon. Now, Dagon was the main Philistine god. You remember the story of Samson? Remember right before Samson died and he pushed those pillars over? That was a temple to Dagon. Now, in, in the past, we used to think that Dagon was sort of a fish god, but, but archaeological uh, uh, study more recently has revealed that Dagon was actually a grain god, a, a god of, of the farms, a, a god of uh, having fertile ground and producing a large a crop. And so he... He had this temple in, in, in verse 2, and the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple. Now look at verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. You see, it's a little bit, little bit sad, isn't it? I mean, Dagon's fallen and he can't get up. They had, to, they had to pick up their God, their strong and mighty God had fallen, he could, their God could not stand in the presence of a holy God. Now some of us say, well, this is so foolish. I mean, how could those people, how could those Philistines worship, you know, some sort of a statue? Well, it's, it's not that simplistic. No one in the ancient Near East just worshipped a God because they thought the statue was amazing. They worshipped those gods because those gods were a means to an end. 
why would you worship a grain god? Because you wanted more grain. Why did you want more grain? Because you wanted to make more profit so that you'd be more wealthy. You strip it all away, and yeah, we may not have a grain god today, even here in Niagara, maybe it's a grape god, I don't know what it is, but we may not have a grain god, but you know what, there sure is a greed god. And behind the grain God, there is a greed God. And you may not bow down to a statue, but the greed God may be something that you're worshiping. And maybe something that is causing you to lie or to cheat on your taxes, to be dishonest with your customers or your competitors. It may be something that would, that would flow into workaholism in your life, to neglect the things that really matter because you're worshiping the greed God. But the greed God, like all other false gods, doesn't have the weight to stand in the presence of God's glory. When when, when God shows up, everything gets obliterated, knocked over. They don't have the strength to stand up to the weight of the true God. The psalmist in Psalm 115 verses uh, uh, 4 to 8, can we get that on the screen here, says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, they do not make a sound in their throat. Do Do you get it? They can't do anything. They're powerless, weak gods. But then notice what it says next. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You see, we, we're told all over in the Bible that you become what you worship. We're promised in the New Testament. David mentioned it when he was, when he was praying before the message that, that for those who trust in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Transformed what? Into the likeness of Jesus Christ. If you worship Jesus, you'll become more like, you'll become more like him. But if you worship a false god, if you worship something that is shallow, that doesn't have the weight of the glory of God, you too will become shallow. I've seen this happen in my own life. Going after something, something that was empty, and then noticing in my own life that I was becoming empty. But I've also noticed that if I want to go deep, if I want to be someone who is solid, who has strong character, then that flows out of a worship of the God of glory. No one can stand before his glory. Verse 4, after they uh, put Dagon back in his place, it says, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. So here we have a, a dismembered and decapitated deity, uh, miraculously uh, destroyed in the presence of God. And it says in verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy, Against the people of Ashdod, remember the word for heavy and glory, it's the same word. The hand of the Lord was glorious. It was heavy on the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Verse 7, and when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of, God of, uh, let the, ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel 
there. So they said, well, they, we can't handle it here in Ashdod. Let, let's, let's send it to, uh, to Gath. Now, Gath, that's Goliath's hometown. And so there's giants living down there. I mean, surely they're going to be strong enough. These tumors won't affect them. And, and surely that will be uh, fine. Verse 9, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So, verse 10, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And so you just follow it along uh, the map. But as, as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. And they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. And again, it says at the end of verse 11, the hand of God was very heavy there. The glory of God. They could not stand before the glory of God. So the ark is going from place to place. They're just passing it on and they realize, no, it can't stay here. So they gather together all the religious leaders. They get all the priests of, of their religions. All of, a, all of the spiritual leaders come together and they ask them this question. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. They say, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Now, five, five golden mice, five golden tumors. Maybe it, was the, maybe it was like the pubonic plague. Maybe the mice were causing the tumors. Um, but w- what are they doing here? Well, well they're, they're doing the best that they can. They, they're trying to appease God like he's one of their gods. They're taking their own religious framework or their own worldview and they're kind of making it up as they go along. Maybe this is what God wants and that's the kind of world we live in today, don't we? Just sort of, oh, maybe, maybe, that, maybe God to me is like this and, 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 to, and to be religious means that, that we should live like, like this. So they get, out, they get the goldsmiths out and they make these little precious moments, figurines of a tumor. As if somehow God's going to be like, oh, that, that's nice craftsmanship. Yeah, I've, I've never had one of these. I'm really, now everything's fine. But notice what happens in verse 5. It says, so you must make images of our tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land. Then it says, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps then he will lighten his hand. Remember, heaviness, lighten. Notice what's happening here. The Philistines, after all of this, have decided that they need to give God glory. They need to recognize that he is the one who has the weight, who has the authority, who has the power. See, this is the amazing thing about our God. Even when it looks like he's losing, he's winning. Things may be happening in our culture right now. Things might be happening in your life right now. And you feel like we're, as the people of God, we're losing. But the truth is, even when it seems like he's losing, our God is always winning. You see, and our greatest reminder of that is the cross of Jesus Christ, isn't it? I mean, didn't it it seem as though Satan had won? I mean, the creatures are crucifying the creator. How bad could this get? He just died on the cross. Seemed like he was losing, but loved ones, he won. Because death was defeated, sin was conquered, and our chains are broken. 
And this is the amazing God that we serve, a God who is glorious, a God who has such incredible weight. So they make up these gold uh, figurines. Also, look at what they say in verse 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? This is four centuries after the Exodus. And the nations in the surrounding area still knew about it. Isn't that incredible? And isn't it, isn't it also funny how even though the nations remembered it, the people of Israel always forgot? You just do a quick study of the word Egypt and, and how it's mentioned in the, in the Old Testament. So often when the word Egypt comes up, it's God reminding the people saying, I am your God who brought you out of Egypt. Remember me? Remember that? Okay. They were always forgetting, and yet the people themselves, the, 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 the Philistines were the ones who uh, remembered. So in verse 7, they set up this little experiment. Verse 7 says, Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take the calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch, if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, it happened by a coincidence. So they're going to set up these two cows on a cart and they're going to see if they go to Beth Shemesh. And it seems like this sort of like unbiased scientific uh, experiment, except there's some, there's some pretty details, there's some pretty significant details here that, that show that the, the experiment is kind of skewed. It's like when you read about a study about, you know, flossing or mouthwash and then, you know, four out of five dentists agree, but then you realize that the study's been sponsored by Crest and Colgate. And you're just sort of like, oh, I wonder... I wonder if, if that was as unbiased as we might want, it to, might want it to be. So first of all, they take two cows that have never, they've never had a yoke before. They've never pulled anything in their life. So how's that going to go? They're going to go around in circles or they're just going to stand still. It's not going to be a straight ride by any means. Then they also, they choose milking cows who had just had babies. They just had calves. Oh, and by the way, they're going to have the calves... Back at, the, back at the ranch. And so their, their calves are going to be away from them. And then they're, then they're, so they're, they're going to see if these cows are going to walk away from their calves to basically go against every force of instinct or what's natural and, and to see if they go forward to uh, Beth Shemesh. And then I love what they say at the end of verse 9. Let's just see if all of this was a coincidence. I mean, did they need any more evidence to see that it wasn't a coincidence? I mean, but the people of Felicia are no different than us today. We, we look at this incredible creation all around us and we say, oh, this is so amazing, it's so complex, it's so beautiful. Isn't this some wonderful coincidental accident? I mean, have you ever heard of something called the Goldilocks Principle? I gave up uh, studying science when I was in grade nine, getting knocked over by big hockey players, but... So I don't know that much about science, but the Goldilocks principle is something that I can understand. Here's the sun and here's planet Earth. 
if the earth were any closer to the sun, we'd all burn up. Life would be impossible. If the earth were any further away from the sun, we'd all freeze to death, like you felt like over the Christmas holidays. (laughs) But we're in a place that's not too hot, not too cold, but just right. And so scientists call it the Goldilocks zone or the Goldilocks principle. But here's the thing, you can't really call it Goldilocks. Because Goldilocks didn't take that porridge and say, it's just right. This porridge must have, been, must have appeared out of some impersonal process over billions of years. No, Goldilocks thought the porridge was just right. Because Mama Bear made it that way. And she walked into a house and laid on some beds, not that hap- got there by accident, but because someone had put it there. And so the world is right where it is, not too hot, not too cold, but just right because someone put it there and it ain't mama bear. And yet we just live in this world where people just are happy to say, oh, it must just be some sort of coincidence. So let's see how their experiment goes. Verse 10, the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them on the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows, notice this, went straight. Two cows that had never been yoked went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. Audience participation time. What's the sound of cattle lowing? Lowing as they went. Now, I've studied some linguistics. When when a cow makes that sound, that lowing sound, the actual translation into English, when a cow says, the cow is actually saying, where are my calves? I need to be with my calves. that's, That's what... Because what was natural would be for those cows to want to be back with their calves. But this was not natural. This was supernatural for them to be walking in a way, along a highway, perfectly straight. Now look at verse 13. It says, Now when the people of Beshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart, the cart came into the field of Joshua to Beshemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering and the Lord, uh, offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifice sacrifices on that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So loved ones, this whole situation with the cows and the cart, this is nothing short of bovine revelation. I'm sorry, I just had to. I had to. No one laughed in the other service either. But up until this point, like, it's been a bit like a comedy, right? Like, God's falling over, the, you know, like, and the Philistines are like, you know, what are we going to do? You know, our God's heads are falling off, and, and what are, how are we going to manage this? And it seems like a bit of a comedy. And then this thing with the cows, it's like a big joke. 
But we're going to see here, now that, the, now that the ark has returned into Israelite territory, that it's actually going to get quite serious. That the, the laughing is going to turn to mourning, because we're going to see the second point. Um, not, just, not just that the Lord, that no one can stand before the Lord's glory, but that no one can stand before the Lord's holiness. No one can stand before the Lord's holiness. Verse 15 mentioned the Levites. And the Levites were the ones who were given the charge, just like this church is a portable church, was set up and tear down. The original temple, the tabernacle, was, was portable. And, and there were people that had specific tasks, specific roles and responsibilities. And they all came from one family, from one tribe, the tribe of, of Levi. And they were responsible for managing things like the Ark of the Covenant. And so they were the ones who handled the ark, but they didn't handle it properly. Verse 19, it says, and he struck, talking about God, and God struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And then look what they say in verse 20. This is the question that we're asking ourselves this morning. The men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? So uh, my Bible translation says that 70 men died. There's a footnote in my Bible. There, you might have a different number. Numbers are really difficult in Hebrew in general, specifically in the books of First and Second Samuel. We, we don't know exactly how many uh, men died. We just know that a number of fatalities occurred because something went wrong with the way the Ark of the Covenant was to be handled because God is a holy God. In the book of Numbers chapter 4, there's, there's sort of this section, it's like an instruction manual for how the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be managed. And in, in Numbers 4 it says, this is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting. That The Kohathites, the sons of Kohath, were Levites. It says, the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons, so that's a different tribe, that, that's, that's, a, that's a different family within Levi, Aaron and his son shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goat skin and spread on top of that a cloth of blue. So you see, there's three layers. If anyone is going to come near the ark, outside of it being in the tabernacle, it needs to be covered in three. The veil that was around it, that goes on top. Then goat skin, then a blue-colored Cloth. No one was supposed to look at the ark, and that's what happened in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 6. And then God gives this warning, let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites, let alone whoever else these people were that looked on the ark, be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. God is holy, we are not. For an unholy person to enter into the presence of a holy God means instant death. But God had this desire. He wanted to dwell among his people. And so he allowed for the Ark of the Covenant to be, to, to be, to be built and constructed and the tabernacle around it because God wanted to dwell among his people. And he established all this whole sacrificial system to make it possible for people to draw near to God. 
but it wasn't supposed to be in some sort of slapstick, casual, easygoing way. There was supposed to be reverence and awe. And so, and so often we lose that, don't we? The sense of God's holiness. The essence of the definition of, of holiness is not a complete definition, but it's simply the word separate. I mean, it's not a perfect definition. It's not like we're singing on Sunday morning, separate, separate, separate. It doesn't really evoke a real passion for who God is, but it is kind of a clear a clear way of understanding what's, what's, that God is other, that there's no one like him. And that we can't, we can't approach the things of God the way we approach some other topic or some other person. Even the things that we have in common with God are on a totally other level. I mean, God is, God is omniscient. And so we have nothing in common with that. It doesn't matter how connected we are with social media or the internet. We can't be in, more, in, 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 in multiple places at once. God is omnipotent. He has all of the power. God God is, 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 sorry, I just said, I think I described omniscient when I was talking about omnipresent. So omnipresent means he's present everywhere. Omniscient means he knows everything. He knows how many hairs are on your head right now. And for some of us, you know, he's doing subtraction, not addition. <laughs> he knows it all, all of the details. He's familiar with all of it. He knows all things. And so those are things that are just beyond our comprehension. But even the things we have in common with him. I mean, I know what it is to love. I love my wife. I love my children. I love my friends and my family. But my love is, is separate from God's love. His love goes beyond what I can understand as love. I can have a sense of right and wrong, and hopefully it comes through in my parenting and how fast I drive my car on the highway and all of that. I have a sense of justice and right and wrong, but God's sense of justice is separate. It's other. It's beyond. There's no one like him. And so God had these barriers, these, these boundaries that he lovingly set up so that he, although he was separate, although he was other, although he was holy, could dwell among his people. And the people in Beth Shemesh violated those things. Then in verse 21 it says, So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Well, there's pretty important detail missing in that message, isn't there? Like the fact that a whole bunch of people just died? Oh, you know, good news, that the ark's back. You want to have it? But the people take it and they show a proper reverence for uh, the ark. That's described in, in, in the rest of verse 2. Then in chapter 7, verse 3, Samuel reemerges on the scene. It says, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. He says, if you're returning, what he's calling them to right now is repentance. So to repent simply means to turn. And he was calling them to, they were, they were with the Lord, then they had wandered away. And Samuel was saying, if you're returning, if you're repenting, if you're turning towards the Lord, he tells them that they need to put away their foreign gods. You know, as I mentioned, there's, you know, it's, it's not as simple as just dealing with the, uh, with the grain god. You also have to address the issue of the greed god. And putting away the foreign gods is not just something that has to be done on the outside. It's not just about creating boundaries. It's not just making rules for yourself. It's actually dealing with the heart issues is why am I not satisfied with God that I feel like I have to go after that? And so that's why he says, put away the foreign gods. But then he also says, direct your heart 
to the Lord and serve him only. It has to be both and. Create the boundaries, but then also deal with the heart. And this is something God has been saying time and time uh, again. I mean, in the, in the book of Genesis, when Jacob finally got things on the, the right track and he started to fear the Lord and rather trying to manipulate and grasp the heel and trick his family, and when he really wanted to fear the Lord, he told his family, Do, can we get this on the screen? Uh, Genesis uh, 30, 35, two to four. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. And then when Jacob's household grew, when those, those 12 brothers, when they became the 12 tribes, and then when they were rescued out of Egypt, the same lesson God had to tell them in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me, the same lesson. And then when the people of Israel were brought out of Egypt, and then they're, they're wandering through the wilderness, and then Joshua is sending them into the promised land, then Joshua had to say, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness, and put away the gods that your fathers have served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. You see, all throughout the history of God's people, we're being told, put away the foreign gods, put away the foreign gods. Even so that you get the end, the end of the book, the end of the book of First John, he's still talking about idols. Put away idols. That these things that we worship instead of God. And so much of the Christian life is putting away the foreign gods. It's continually repenting. Uh, 500 years ago this past year, on October 31st, uh, 1517, uh, Martin Luther nailed uh, 95 statements, 95 theses, 95 things that he wanted to argue about and discuss with other clergy, with other priests. And so it's famous, right? It's well-known among Protestant churches or Reformed churches. Do you know what the first one was? The first thing that Martin Luther wanted to discuss uh, was, uh, was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. If you are going to recognize that God is a holy God and that you are a sinful person, that means that repentance isn't just when you walk down an aisle at Billy Graham. Repentance isn't just when you become a Christian at summer camp. Repentance is daily, where we are daily humbling ourselves before a holy God and saying that you have or I have sinned against him. Verse 4 says, So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Verse 6 says, they gathered at Mizpah and drew near and poured it, uh, poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. I want you to make note of this thirdly. We've talked about the fact that no one can stand before the Lord's glory. No one can stand before his holiness. And I don't want you to misunderstand me when I say this, but this is the third thing I want you to remember about this passage. When you understand his glory and his holiness and you're walking in repentance, no one can stand before the Lord's people. I'm not talking in some sort of, you know, overly charismatic, always walking in victory sort of thing. I'm talking about sound theology. When you truly understand who God is 
and when you are trusting in his sovereignty that no one can stand before the Lord's people. So the people, they're walking in repentance. They're saying, we've sinned against the Lord. They've gathered Samuel. He's teaching them the Bible. And then what happens? Right when they start to really try to live for the Lord, who comes back? The Philistines, the enemy. And where do they go? This isn't a battle. Let's go look look back at the map. This is not some battle like Ebenezer where they're just right on the border. They, look where Mizpah is. It's the heartland. It, it, it's, it's right at, the, uh, right at the, the, the center, you know? There's a lot of 1812 uh, uh, history around this area. You know, the, 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 the battles that happened in Canada in 1812, you know, we're, we're talking about the Niagara region, maybe as far as Stony Creek, you know, Laura Secord running through the fields, all that sort of stuff. They barely got past the border. When you look at the American side of the history of the War of 1812, we chased them to Washington, to Baltimore. I mean, the Star Spangled Banner was written when we were kicking their butts. And so this is not just some battle on a border. This is something that was happening in the center of the nation. And this is what, I've experienced this in my life. You know, I go to a conference or I hear a great sermon or I read something in a book or God speaks to me in my devotions and I'm, get, I'm getting serious about the Lord. I'm really going to pursue him with everything that I have. And at that moment, that's when a target gets on my back. That's when the attack gets harder, more precise, more, uh, more deceptive and more damaging than ever. And that's exactly what happens here. You see, when I say that no one can stand before God's people, I'm not saying that God's people never get attacked because clearly they got attacked right here. I'm also not saying that God's people are never afraid because it's right there in black and white. They were afraid of the Philistines. Verse eight, the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, so think about this, a lamb has been slain, it's being offered as a burnt offering. As this is happening, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. So there's this worship service happening. A lamb is being sacrificed, and they're gathered in worship, and then the enemies are just pressing in. They are just marching. They have them surrounded. And all they're doing is worshiping. All they're doing is praying. They're not planning, you know, what do we do when they attack us? What's our counterattack going to be? They are just worshiping and they are praying. And notice how God intervenes. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into a confusion. God came through because no one can stand before God's people. And they were defeated before Israel. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. No one can stand against God's people. They all gathered around a lamb that had been sacrificed and that was their ultimate victory. Loved ones, we're the same. We've gathered around a lamb that was sacrificed for us 
and the enemy cannot touch us, that our sin cannot destroy us, that the accusations that are brought against us don't stick. Why? Because the lamb has been sacrificed for us. Then in verse 12 it says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. And he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. He took this rock and he called it Ebenezer. Now, if you remember back to, to chapter 4 and to the map, that Ebenezer, that was the, Ebenezer was the name of the place where the, where the defeat happened, when they lost the ark. But remember, even when it seems like God's losing, God's winning. And even when it seems like God's people are losing, God's people are winning. And so he takes this rock and he renames it Ebenezer. And he says, up until now, the Lord has helped us. And the idea was that for generations, they would be able to say, you know, you see this rock right here? We were surrounded. The Philistines had snuck in and they were going to attack us at the very core of our nation. And we prayed and God came through. And that's what this rock means. And even people who were, who were losing faith could, could come to this place and to remember, yeah, you know what, there's a new battle and the Philistines are back again because they did come back. But they had that Ebenezer, they had that rock of remembrance that, yeah, it's bad now, but it was also bad then and God came through. You see, loved ones, we also have a rock of remembrance. We have an Ebenezer. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. No matter what trial we might be facing, no matter what we may be going through, we can say, you know what? I might be having problems right now, but my biggest problem, my sin, and my eternity has been dealt with because of Jesus Christ and his victory. That's our, that's our rock of remembrance. That is our Ebenezer. And you know, sometimes in church, we end up um, singing some things that we don't necessarily understand. And you know, in that old song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, uh, there's a line in it. Uh, this, is, this is the line. It says, here I raise my Ebenezer. Right? How often have we sung that? We never really thought, well, <laughs> what is that? What's Ebenezer? I once knew a guy named Ebenezer, but uh, or Scrooge, is this about the Christmas carol? Here I raise my Ebenezer. I'm leaving my grumpiness behind. I want to be more gentle. That's not what this is about. No, this is about 1 Samuel chapter 7. This is about us coming to the cross and saying, no matter what I'm going through in the future, my rock of remembrance, my Ebenezer is right here. I can come back to this place and remember that God is with me and that God is for me and that God loves me and that God will help me. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. That's exactly what Samuel says. Thus far the Lord has brought us. I got this far because of God's grace. And he says, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. You see, loved ones, here's the amazing thing. No one can stand before the Lord. But the Lord chose to come and stand among us. And he came and he dwelt among us. And he didn't, he didn't just come and stand here in general. He came to stand in the place of judgment. No one can enter into the presence of a holy God. 
without dying. And Jesus died that death. He paid the wages. He, he, he paid the price that all of us need to pray, pay in order to enter into the presence of God. He made a way. And his cross is our Ebenezer. He stood in our place. He suffered for our sin so that we can one day stand before the Lord and freely bow before him in honor and worship and freely call him Father and have him speak to us and call us his sons and his daughters. And so let's bow our heads uh, together now as we think about how we might uh, live this out in our lives. And so Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word We thank you for this church that values your word, that values a spirit-filled, gospel-driven dependence uh, on you. And God, I pray for each and every heart that's here right now. I pray that there would be a, a reorientation of every heart, of every life in view of the cross of Jesus Christ, that he would be our Ebenezer, that he would be our rock of remembrance that we can look to And remember that incredible victory that was won for us at Calvary. And so God, we love you and thank you. Be with us now as we respond in worship and in praise. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.